Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this is episode 23, No Comment, Tall Tales and Teleprompters. In this episode, we'll be reviewing the complex practice of media relations during disaster, including the crucial role of the public information officer and the growing need to go beyond just the basic do's and don'ts of standard media relations training. To this end, we're able to catch up with Rob Keller, a veteran PIO, and get his take on effective public information strategies following his recent talk at the DEMCON conference in Toronto earlier this fall. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast. Current. Relevant. Canadian. So Grayson, you might not know this, but I happen to be a bit of a PIO aficionado. Oh, really? You know, I I don't Mm -hmm. think I've ever heard anyone describe themselves (laughs) that way before. (laughs) Well, I just love me a good press scrum. And as you know, I used to work as a broadcast journalist. And so I've seen a wide uh, variety of people being interviewed. And I do really appreciate people that uh, have PIO mastery. I find it a pleasure to watch. Yeah, you know, a, a good disaster spokesperson can certainly make or break the response in a lot of ways. Uh, you attended a conference presentation on this. Yeah, so I was recently at the DEMCON conference in Toronto, uh, Disaster and Emergency Management Conference, and uh, I saw a talk by Rob Keller uh, titled The Crisis Within the Crisis, How Social Media Fueled the DAPL Protest and How It Changed Our Communication Strategy. And it included his top 10 tips for being a great PIO. And uh, Rob has a lot of experience in this area, but he reflected specifically on some of his recent experiences being involved in in an IMT deployment during the Dakota Access Pipeline protests in in DAPL. And that went on for months, uh, 234 days to be exact. So I managed to uh, meet with him after his presentation and and we kind of went over some of his top recommendations. But before we get to that, I think it's time for... Acronym Analysis. Good stuff. So we've got a few acronyms to get through. Uh, the first is PIO, which stands for Public Information Officer. And before the ICS Canada nerds out there start freaking out, we know PIO is not an ICS Canada term. It's just the information officer. So for the purposes of this uh, presentation, I think they'll be interchangeable. That's right. And another term you'll hear often uh, when you read about this sort of stuff is uh, the concept of a JIC or JIC. It's a Joint Information Center. It's a bit of a FEMA-centric term, but it's basically a fusion center where you've got information officers working to collaborate and um, uh, diffuse information to media and reporters and that sort of thing. And a similar concept uh, comes up a couple times in the interview it's called a VOST or a virtual operational support team um, and it, it's pretty similar just that off-site presence and uh, support now here's our conversation recorded on October 3rd 2018 and this was live uh, from the conference floor of DEMCON and uh, you'll hear the bustling conference activity in the background we're excited to announce we've got several DEMCON speakers coming to you uh, this year and this is uh, the first one uh, in that series My name is Rob Keller. I was the public information officer for the Morton County Sheriff's Department, and I was part of the North Dakota Department of Emergency Services Instant Management Assistant Team, IMAT. Um, We were called out to work the uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, What started out as a 
protest, of, you know, just was going to last two or three weeks, ended up to be 234 days. Wow. And I had the pleasure of sitting through your talk, which was uh, wonderful, by the way. Um, one of the things I, I really liked is he gave key points to how to do crisis communication well and how to be an effective PIO. So I thought maybe we could just review some of those points. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Well, one of the things being a retiring as a uh, Army public information officer, I always say we need, when we're doing training, we need to be hot. Being hot means uh, honest, open, transparent. And it really serves us well. And, um, and one of the three questions that I have learned a long time ago, that if any emergency manager can answer these three questions, they will be well on their way to having a successful execution of that protest or that, that emergency. Three questions are, here's what happened. So we got to be honest. What really happened? And we can't sugarcoat it. We can't uh, add to it, take away, but here's what happened. And then the people want to know, here's what we are doing. We meeting your agency, your local law enforcement, your company, your jurisdiction. But the most important question, I think the reason why we are in emergency management is, number one, here's what happened, here's what we are doing, but the most important one is, here's what we want you to do, you meaning the public. Understanding our public is extremely important as we're getting our message out. They're looking for answers. Do they shelter in place? Do they leave the area? Will this road be blocked off? And that can be done whether it's a Twitter account tweet or a press release or a Facebook site. I really liked your concept uh, about the BOST, the, the virtual team that you had working off-site. Can you tell us a little bit about how that worked? Yeah, the BOST team was virtual operations support team. You know what? I never met them. Yeah. I've never met them. I've yeah. seen pictures of them, but they saved our, our idea. I think that is emergency management gold right there. That's such a pearl. Uh, knowing what um, what tasks can be offloaded, you can't uh, really scale up probably big enough in the field right. to, to manage that level of... Yep. Um, yeah. you're, you're right, You're right, Joshua, because it, it's... um. Uh, it gave us time to do the things we had to do at ground zero. They were at the probably 5,000 foot view. We had to be there in the present here and now. Basically like an intelligence section working for you. Yes. And they helped us to say, well, we need to address this situation. Whereas if we, without the training, we might have addressed something else and it would have, could have created more, more feedback that we didn't, didn't want. So they, they, there's a rhythm. There's a there's a reason for this. And so, you know what? Your boss team, emergency managers and others, can be some people you never met. It can be, you could look to the local college who has a uh, communications department and they're studying social media. They need time. They need energy. They gave, they know how to look at it. So you can use someone like that. And um, But this team here helped us to help us write content as well. Content is extremely important. That's fantastic. What are some of the other key points? Well, number one, be bold and start messaging confidently immediately. And that's something that the community and the public is looking for. What's the message coming out? One of the things that I always try to say is one message, one voice. And me by that is no matter if I have the superintendent of high patrol or the governor or a PIO, or whoever's saying it, it's one message, but the same message is going out in different vernacular. So that's important, and that's why talking points are extremely important. We never do anything without talking points, because write three or four or five talking points, and no matter if I have a spokesperson go on, or what we call a surrogate um, in, in, our, in our industry, uh, there doesn't matter. As long as they're sticking to the talking points, I know the message and at the end of the day and as we do analysis, will that same recurring one message, one voice. Then then the other one is we always tell people, stay in your lane. 
don't know if you ever heard that. Yeah. But it's when, if you're the fire chief and you're talking about the police department, you have now stepped outside of your line, unless it is to compliment them. That's their business, and so we just need to caution everybody, stay in your lane, and we'll be okay. Um, the other one is uh, cultural diversity training for all staff and responders, and that's extremely important when you're dealing with indigenous people because we need to understand the culture in which uh, our friends live in. And in Morton County, that was extremely important to be able to understand from the standpoint of why, you know, what are the cultural, what are the diversity pieces that happen. Um, most of us who live around there, yes, we understand that, but other law enforcement, other people coming into your area, if they're going to bring other for EMAC, Emergency Management Assistance Compact, or Mutual Aid, you before you bring them on, you need to spin them up with someone who was a First Nation elder or someone who has got training in that area on what to expect, why we do what what we do. And that's extremely important when we're dealing with that. Uh, uh, the other thing which I uh, made a note on was uh, you're talking about staying loyal to your local media. And these big events, they generate lots of buzz and excitement and, and often sometimes the loudest voice gets the most attention. Right. But, but you made a good point about uh, why, should, why is it important to keep the local media in mind? When a national incident, international incident happens, you will have all these satellite trucks and correspondents coming in from all over the country, all over the world. And they come in with a lot of fast-charging policies and procedures they want immediacy and um, I mean a lot of things they got these stars out there and they're, they're movie stars and all right. that it's not the case um, we come back when it's all said and done within two or three days they're gone and we get back to the local media and if we've sold out the local media I have lost a relationship that I've tried to build and yeah. that's what's important yeah, they're there for the long run. Exactly. What else is on your list? Well, number one is brace yourself, both professionally and personally. You have to take care of yourself. Uh, we, as public information officers and emergency managers, we think we're superhuman, and we can go 24 hours a day without sleep. Well, we can't. We're going to start making mistakes, and mistakes that could affect human life or safety, and etc. So, so you need to watch out for your team, and you need to look at that. Are they making mistakes? Are they repeating themselves? And, and what we did in our JIC is, is to basically say, hey, get out of here. You, you need to go get, get some rest, etc. So that's both personally. Professionally, that means we talked about some of this, but... Uh, yeah, this was scary. This, yeah. uh, we don't think of ourselves as victims generally in a response, but really a lot of your uh, responders and corresponders were, were targeted. They were. we got to be careful for that. I mean, we. I mean, it comes with part of the the culture in which law enforcement is in, you know, to get uh, you know, feedback, and sometimes it's not positive feedback. But when they start threatening your family, when they start following you, you, you home, and there's a term that came up during this that I had never heard, and many of the people on this presentation probably never heard, but it's called doxing. And so doxing, in, in many cases, at the, at the extreme of it, they get your, through your social media, personal, whether it's your Twitter, your Facebook, your Instagram, and they will start to, because we post pictures of our families, the school our kids go to, so they will take that and post on Facebook, exactly, um, where your children go to school. It, they could even have your phone number, your address, and that is totally, from the standpoint of law enforcement, some of that's to be expected, but from the family, our family's never signed up for that. Yeah. And you mentioned um, one of the other thing I made a note on from the talk was um, maybe not the actual death, but the, the near death of press releases, and that's yeah. a core part. I know all yeah. the all the basic PIO training that I've done is you know practicing writing press releases. And here's the format. Uh, why, why are press releases falling out of favor? Well, I think we're seeing a change when it comes to how news organizations 
want to receive their information on a fire, a traffic accident, updates on, on the protest, updates on the emergency, updates on whatever it is. Because they're operating now in a 24-7 news cycle. You have to turn that around almost immediately. Remember I said immediacy is the most important. If you crank out a press release, we're talking time for the approval process, time to get it sent out on a, on a fax or a fax that's dating it <laughs> on, a, on, on, on internet or on yeah. social media and then get it. Um, it. I'm not saying they're totally going away, but we're seeing more organizations, uh, first responders in the U.S. going to a Twitter yeah. type to get their news. Twitter because being the new press release. Twitter, tw- right, and you can be succinct. And when it's done right, that reporter also has a Twitter account. Now they have personalized information back and forth, whereas telephone calling may take you, may, may never get hold of the PIO. So we're starting to see that. I'm not saying it's totally ending, but organizations should start taking a look at what are we doing with our Twitter account um, to get the word out. Another trick of the trade was the use of infographics being quite high. Yeah, yeah. Infographics are very, because infographics serve well when it comes to print, but it also serves excellent on social media because we read in chunks. And that's how you write for social media in chunks. So that's what's changing that particular uh, medium. Thanks so much for uh, for talking to us today. Well, it was great to be here and uh, to extend the invitation to come up and present. And I tell you what, I am really, I love this group here. It's dear, dear to my heart. And uh, uh, thanks for all that you do, Joshua, as well as getting the word out. Appreciate it. Look forward to chatting with you again soon. That sounded like a, a great conversation. And, you know, I, a couple of key takeaways for me, especially, is that just basic realization that disaster management is information management or, you know, sometimes and in, in this case, misinformation management. It's a key function. I really liked his hot acronym. For example, uh, the honest, open, transparent. You know, I'm glad to see we're shifting away from that mentality of of limiting information releases or that sort of culture of secrecy. So I thought that was yeah, a, the a gatekeeper, really, yeah, yeah, role. And I also liked his uh, his sort of saying of being bold and starting messaging right away while still staying in your lane and and sticking to that one message, one voice. Yeah, I think that's an important concept. And you know, disasters are often multifactorial. It can be easy for you to start taking and answering questions outside of uh, your area of expertise. Uh, So I think it's um, often the best thing to do to not be afraid to defer to to someone else. And as we see uh, commonly now with with most press briefings, you'll have a variety of agency representatives there. So don't be afraid to to delegate and, and defer a question. Kind of like podcasters getting some uh, subject matter experts to do their interviews. (laughs) Just like that. (laughs) Exactly. So the other thing that I really liked from uh, this interview was his talk about the VOS, that virtual operations support team. I think a a key question that you should always be asking is what can I offload from the incident site? What can I uh, take away from that cognitive burden? And also who's better at this than than I am or the person's currently doing it. Absolutely. This is disaster elegance at play. So whenever you are trying to struggle with internet connections and 
printers and photocopiers that don't work. You should be thinking, how can I offload this work to a nice air-conditioned, Wi-Fi-enabled environment? <laughs> and uh, that's really where this work should be done. Uh, this is not uh, the type of work that you uh, really want to have at the scene or at, at an incident command post. Uh, as much as you can, get people working for you. And and as uh, Rob mentioned, he had people up in Canada, so uh, you know, a totally different country, supporting him. They were able to do the social media intelligence, able to draft reports, able to monitor multiple feeds and kind of give you that uh, real-time intelligence. And I think those intelligence products are, are crucial. So lots of really good takeaways from that interview, but there were also a few concepts that kind of began to worry me. For example, this idea of, of doxing, which I hadn't really come across very often before. Can you explain that to me a little bit more, Josh? Yeah, so uh, this was really interesting talking to Rob. Essentially, what he had happen was individual responders were personally targeted on social media. And this isn't just like angry tweets like you see with celebrities. This was people having pictures of their family posted online. You know, it's kind of implied threats. Uh, they had... Um, information about the schools that their children uh, mm. were attending. And this is in the context, too, of, of actual death threats and things, uh, you know, in, in this doxing world that, that happened in other incidents, too. So a very good lesson about the importance of keeping your personal social media uh, presence well manicured and maintained and, uh, you know, maybe even putting that in an incident safety briefing because uh, – Everything online is permanent, and if you are the face of a uh, an unpopular organization um, or an event that's uh, maybe contentious, then I think it's uh, a real possibility that people are going to start researching you. And um, yeah, I think it's just a different era that we have to uh, keep these sort of things in mind. It is a whole other type of risk. You know, sometimes we're worried about the legal or liability issues of being a, a first responder. And, and, you know, in Alberta, there's some new legislation that's uh, um, to limit the liability for first responders. But that does nothing for doxing, you know, that sort of hacktivism internet vigilanteism that uh, can be a big problem yeah and you know certainly we, we're not trying to scare anyone away from talking to the media but just be being conscious of, of what you say and um, you should never answer a question you know with with anger or or anything like that if you're if you're feeling an emotional response uh, that's definitely the time to, to step away because those clips uh you know once they're out there they're out there that's right the internet is forever so with all these new technologies and threats, do you think that the current PIO or information officer position training is adequate? Well, yeah, it's an interesting point. So there's lots of courses and training uh, options out there. And I personally find most PIO courses or workshops or media training workshops to be fairly outdated and not to generalize. Mm -hmm. They tend to be taught by retired uh, journalists or more frequently actually uh, PR uh, people um, who don't necessarily always have a, a disaster uh, a background or, or emergency management background. Uh, there are experts certainly in the realms of crisis communications, and I would seek those sorts of people out uh, for your information training. Um, but this is an area that uh, a lot of the, the books that are still being used in some of these workshops are, are really outdated. And they talk about things like press releases and how to draft and format a press release. And I mean, that's, that is just not useful any longer. And even the concept of having um, press briefings, I mean, that 
assumes that we still operate on some sort of news cycle that isn't 24 hours all the time. Um, so I, I think, yeah, just making sure that you're careful with uh, who you get your training from. There's lots of people who are happy to take your money and offer media training, and you want to make sure that you're you're getting somebody that's uh, credible and up to date. Yeah, there are a lot of assumptions in the the older versions of the training, and and you know the the NIMS, or the National Incident Management System training, or the ICS training it really promotes this gather, verify, coordinate, and disseminate model, and it's too slow. You know, it makes the assumption really that you slow. have the time to uh, run all the information by the command and general staff, and that it, make, it takes the assumption that the incident commander is somehow responsible for what information goes out. And that's a, that's a lot to ask of a, an incident commander to, to manage the incident and the public face of the disaster. Yeah, <clears throat> we know with, at the speed that that news happens, uh, that process is just too clunky. You're always going to be behind the eight ball doing that. You know, their deadlines aren't going to change and they're, they have to go to air with something. And uh, if you haven't gotten back to them, then they'll have to fill the blank air with whatever they've got. I can't help but wonder if a lot of these processes stem from the the old idea that the media is the enemy of the of the incident. Uh, I think that has changed. I think that the media involvement in in disasters is a given and uh, are incredibly useful in disasters. So how do we involve them more, and what is the the best way to get at that. I love that you're asking that, Grayson, because I, I couldn't agree more. And that's not just my bias, uh, someone who uh, worked in journalism. <laughs> um, I think this is a, a common misconception. And we often, even just the, the terms that we use, you know, dealing with the media, it's like dealing with a bad rash or something. Like it's, <laughs> you know, how, how can we work with the media? The media is a reflection of society. The media are our partners. Uh, no, even with, with, despite social media, it's still the most effective way to communicate with um, large audiences quickly and directly. And as emergency managers, we pride ourselves on being able to work with anybody to, you know, break down silos and, and collaborate for the common good. And uh, I think we should include the media uh, in that and, and not see them as the enemy. You know who I, I think really took that to heart and has been a leader in involving the media uh, is the military. That idea of embedded or integrated journalists within frontline combat units, I wonder if that can be incorporated into a disaster response in some ways. You're absolutely right. I mean, I don't know why we don't offer, you know, ICS training to media as a member. They should be totally integrated into our disaster exercises. I mean, a, a lot of the exercises we have now, it's, uh, you know, fellow responders, you know, tossing softball questions, uh, pretending to be the media. Um, but why not build those relationships where make that part of your actual exercise function, make it an objective in your exercise to, uh, you know, to understand the, the needs on both sides. And um, I think there's uh, lots of opportunities there. And, and we have a bit of a, an old school mentality, especially those of us that come from a public safety background. I remember being handed a card when I first started working in the fire service, and it was my instructions on what to do in the terrifying eventuality of, if a, a reporter were to ask me a question <laughs> at the scene of an accident or a fire and it was literally a scripted line. It's like, uh, I can neither confirm nor deny any of your you know, questions and I will Classic. refer you to the 
public information officer and you know is as if i'm gonna whip out this card and, and and read it instead of just you know acting like a human yeah there's no better way to get rid of all of your credibility than say things like no comment or i can't confirm or deny or the situation is evolving or anything like that absolutely you if just became the least important voice in the in the disaster <laughs> by saying, yeah never yeah. ever ever say no comment well we, we've we've uh, bandied about a lot of our own opinions around media yeah. uh, in disaster but let's talk a, a little bit more academically. Great, yeah, let's do a journal club. So for our journal club article today, we have an am amazing article. I can't believe I haven't read it before. It's called uh, Research About the Mass Media and Disaster with a subtitle, Never, Well, Hardly Ever, The Twain Shall Meet. So this is by the, f the famous uh, Joseph Scanlon. Uh, he was an emergency communications research professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, so a very Canadian connection there. And I think this is a, a landmark paper. After this episode is done, stop what you're doing, look this up and read it uh, or listen to our summary here. So the, the preface of this article is that there's a historical disconnect between journalism focused literature on mass communication and disaster management focused literature on exactly the same thing. Uh, there's obviously a lot of opportunities for overlap and synergy, and we know that the media is a, a huge element in mass communication during disasters. So there's a clear need for, for this type of literature to be combined. In this review, he, he looks at a lot of previous emergency management literature and journalism literature and tries to make that connection and has a few really interesting things to talk about. So first off, uh, he highlights the, the key roles of media during disasters, so the, the classic and historical roles. So one of the most well-established roles is early warning and communications of warning to the, the public. Uh, in fact, Corintelli, his quote was that it's the clearest and most consistent role for mass media in disaster is warning. Other key roles for media in disaster are situational awareness. You know, quite often they're the first ones to have a helicopter in the air or to have people on the scene. Uh, and they do have license to enter areas that some people can't get into. Uh, there's also a, a big role for media in the recovery phase. So getting out information of where to go for help or how to get a hold of that funding, uh, really critical role for the media. And the one that really surprised me, because it goes against conventional knowledge, is that the media have a, a crucial role in rumor control. And it makes sense, if you think about it. The best way to beat a rumor is to get the, the real information out there, and the best way to get the real information out there is, is through the media. So there's several examples of where rumors were not caused by the media, they were controlled by engaging the media early. Another element of this article that I found really interesting was talking about human behavior in disaster. So unfortunately, the first casualty of disaster is, also, is often record keeping. And a lot of the literature that comes out of disasters is based on sort of reflective memory. And sometimes the uh, true actions of individuals aren't captured in that. So the, having the media on scene has had a profound impact on how we understand human behavior in a lot of ways. For example, uh, recasting victims as first responders is in part a result of good media coverage. There used to be this idea that 
victims didn't play any part in the disaster response. And we now know through media coverage that they're the first on scene, the first pulling people out of the rubble, and and really they are the first responders. And journalists play an important role as being the basically the, the first draft of history, as, as people often say. And at your point that you just made about the, you know, documenting the incident response, uh, I think is is huge. I mean, a lot of disaster research comes from reading newspaper reports. And when we did that, the Halifax explosion episode um, last year, I mean, how many of our primary sources were Mm -hmm. newspaper articles? And they were the only sources that really survived. And, you know, unfortunately, and this is brought up by Dr. Scanlon as well, is that that function of recording human activity is somewhat usurped or overshadowed by the command post view is what he calls it. This public information officer or information officer view that the only correct information and the only worthwhile information comes from the command post. So everyone converges on the incident commander and the responders to get the real story when really the, the real story is out there. It's the people doing what they naturally do. Another uh, myth that helped to be busted, I guess, by Uh, media coverage is the idea that people panic during disaster. There is almost no evidence to support that and a lot of the contrary evidence comes from media coverage of people helping each other, following instructions, and not running around panicking as we always used to believe. I think some of the um, part of media coverage that gets a a bad rap is, uh, you know, at the end of the day you're putting out a news product, you're trying to put something that's engaging, something that's newsy, quote unquote newsy out there. And, you know, that's where we get, you know, for example, the the annual hurricane hype where um, a melodramatic reporter in a windstorm, you know, standing on a pier somewhere when the storm's coming in. I mean, I think, thankfully, there's been a little bit of self-mediation within the media that we're starting to move away from that. But those sort of things, I think, are uh, are out there. But the vast majority of, of journalists covering disasters are trying to, uh, you know, provide an honest account mm-hmm. of what's And, you know, on. that segues really well into the section of this article that dealt with concerns, real concerns with media involvement. And one of them is the treatment of victims. Uh, media coverage of victims can very much be a double-edged sword. On, on the one hand, uh, it can be very cathartic for the victims to talk about their experience or uh, make a request or a call to action or even just express their emotions. And it is useful in reinforcing that human element story of the disaster. Unfortunately, it can also be just downright unethical. Uh, within the article, there's a great quote uh, from a journalist named Kim Brunhuber. Uh, She's recalling shooting visuals of a a Swiss air crash in Nova Scotia, and the quote goes like this. Uh, She catches sight of our camera 20 feet away, lowers her head, pulls back part of her black dress to hide her face. When we put our reports together, we stay with the shot until the moment she shields her face, saving us the public acknowledgement of our grim voyeurism. Days later, what I suspect becomes clear. I can edit the shot, but I can't edit my guilt. And that, I think, captures the really ethically choppy waters of uh, using victims as a face of the disaster. Yeah. And it's interesting because as the article goes on to say, you know, there's also research that suggests uh, journalists are on the whole welcome in disaster scenes. You know, it's uh, the issue is... Um, 
you know, people feeling unheard. And this is uh, very much a way that they can regain control, the way they can make sure their stories are heard, their concerns are heard. And it can be very empowering. Uh, I think another really important ethical issue about media coverage is the types of narratives that uh, come out from disaster coverage and journalists are looking for stories and you know there's there's the type of journalism where you're just reporting you know the five w's who what where when why but uh, when you're doing more of a current affairs story you're trying to figure out what is the context there what are the bigger issues what's the actual narrative that ties all of these events together and if you don't have a lot of background in disaster and, and journalists are human too they, they can be overwhelmed by what they see it at a disaster site, uh, we tend to default to these classic socialized concepts of disaster, like us all coming together and we're, we're all in this together and, you know, this disaster hit all of us equally. And we know that those things aren't true. We know that lower socioeconomic uh, status populations are hit incredibly disproportionately uh, um, by disasters and a lot of social problems that um, uh, exist pre-disaster are amplified during a disaster. And so it's interesting when you look at these narratives that often aren't um, accurate, but they come out as just a default story to tell. Um, there's also the, the concept of OPSEC or, or operational security, and this comes up um, in terms of doing things like open houses and and you know uh, emergency preparedness week and we're often very keen to show off all of our you know shiny resources and uh, remember this is all going to be publicly available information and uh, somebody who's trying to do a targeted attack or uh, do pre-planning um, it's pretty easy uh, for them often to to get some robust information if you look at a few years worth of of media coverage to find out uh, the strength and and staffing levels of um, various emergency services, you know, where resources are kept, where EOCs are located, uh, those sort of things. So it's something just to remember. Um, again, we want honest, open, transparent communication, but just make sure that operational security is something that you consider. That divide between safety and security really becomes apparent there. So just to summarize, again, this is an excellent review article. It's available on the FEMA website. It's actually embedded in a lot of the FEMA uh, public information courses is a core uh, reference and it just does a nice job of, uh, of doing a, a bit of a systematic review of both the mass media communications literature, the actual study of journalism, as well as uh, emergency management literature on uh, media relations. And these are two fields that have kind of been developing in parallel, and it's uh, long overdue that we see more, more crossover and interdisciplinary research. Speaking of crossover and inter interdisciplinary, you seem to be just about the embodiment of this. Can, as you have <laughs> Have that journalism background and this disaster management background why don't you give us our tool of the trade for this episode sure well, i can give you a, a few pointers and so you know i worked um uh, both uh, cbc radio and, and global news so uh, kind of the television side um as well as with a few uh other outlets over the years and i think there's a few insights which i carry with me um having been on both sides of the microphone so i think the important thing to remember first of all is that journalists are people too and um one of the things that journalists are always looking for in any story and not just disasters is 
an authentic story. So something that involves real people with, again, a real, real story and real narrative. The last thing you want is the talking head that everybody else is getting. And this is something that is, you know, kind of been going on. We refer to it as the cosmic war between what we call PR flack and uh, and journalists. And not that public information officers are necessarily PR spokespersons, but there's, there's a bit of that role. Uh, if you can offer up a real person, quote unquote, a real person uh, to a journalist, you're much more likely um, to develop, I think, you know, the type of story and narrative that you want. Uh, so real people being, you know, actual coal-faced responders or people uh, who are trustworthy and credible in your organization. We all work in this field with, with amazing people, and we should highlight them. We shouldn't ha- have to, you know, feel like we need to hide behind um, spokespeople. Uh, and I think you know providing that, especially during a disaster, it provides a human face, and uh, that's something that's really important. And it's you'd much rather have that than you know the unsolicited uh, real person interview, where journalists you know just go and find somebody uh, who happens to be standing at a police barricade and, and you know getting information that way. So uh, highlight the people in your organization when you go to any sort of media availability. Have a list of of uh, people from different backgrounds, different roles in your incident, uh, who would be available, um, you know, who you could actually have a, a media availability with, as well as ideas for uh, real stories. And I think this works even better um, if you can build relationships with the media. And this would be my second point. So we all know that, uh, you know, there's a life cycle to disasters and, and your media coverage is going to be the same way. So having preparedness and, and also thinking about after the disaster uh, is important. And the earlier you can start building those relationships with the media and having a positive relationship, the better. Uh, you should have, um, I think, especially if you're a, a municipal emergency manager, you should know the names of a few um, journalists with different media outlets in your community, have a relationship with them, keep in touch with them, um, help them out with stories, and uh, that will serve you uh, a long way, having that human relationship. Also, availability. So, you know, as we're moving to a 24-7 news cycle, I shouldn't say moving to, we're we're in a 24-7 news cycle, um, having constant availability is also huge. And especially if you're worried about multiple... um, uh, you know, information sources, we'll say, uh, the more available you are to take an interview, to answer a question, to provide background research, uh, the better. And you can really be become a trusted go-to uh, content expert. And even if it's not necessarily, um, you know, a, an active deployment, providing that context and background helps build that information. To that point you though you do need to understand the difference between news and advertising and this is something to share a quick anecdote that I, I definitely learned with my time I was working uh, with CBC and uh, you know I ha- still had an interest at the time in emergency management I was working in emergency services uh, as well and I went to my editor and said hey uh, you know there's this big disaster exercise that's happening in our community there's going to be you know they're testing this and this and this and uh, these all these different agencies are going to be involved you know um, I thought it was a really interesting story I'm like this is great i'll pitch it at our our story meeting and i'll i still remember the response of my editor he said oh so you're telling me the fire department is doing some training just like every taxpayer would expect the fire department 
does on a constant basis and <laughs> you know and you know the city is is uh, doing emergency planning just like we would expect he said the story would be if you know the media or pardon me the story would be if the municipality wasn't prepared for a disaster that would be a story so the things that we find interesting <laughs> as emergency managers isn't necessarily what um, you know other people find interesting and just because there's going to be flashing lights and, and fire trucks there it doesn't necessarily make it a story um, so knowing what is newsy and if you can point to something if you want to use an event like an exercise to highlight your agency then try and have a, a pitch built into your um, built into your event. So this is the first time that you know these two agencies have worked together, or this is the first time we're testing out this new um, command model, or this new technology, or the first time we're using drones to to help us search for victims, or whatever the story is. Um, not just you know here's our annual disaster exercise, or here's our annual you know preparedness week. Uh, that's going to make you know either the last page of the newspaper, or uh, you know you know be on the cutting room floor for the evening news. Well, there you have it. Josh's top tips for how to talk to the media. Um, if you're looking for something a little bit more uh, published, I guess, uh, <laughs> I would point you towards the World Health Organization Strategic Communications Framework. Uh, it's a pretty basic framework, but it covers a lot of the things that we're, we're talking about. Uh, and they're really key elements of any communication plan is to make it accessible, actionable, credible, trusted, relevant, timely, and understandable. There's a great framework diagram uh, incorporated into the document and some, some pretty good instructions on how to create a communication strategy, not just for health organizations, but for any organization. Just before we go, I do want to take the time to mention that Epic Podcast is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is powered by ATB Financial. If you want to make a difference for the cause that's important to you, you should know about the ATB Cares program. Uh, ATB Cares lets you increase the impact of your donations. If you donate to your favorite charity, for example, uh, via atbcares.com, ATB will cover the fees and add 15% to your donation. In 2017 alone, over 4 million was donated to uh, different charities through ATB Cares, and it's a great way that you can support a worthy disaster-related cause. And that's it for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Rob Keller for sharing his time and expertise with us on the complex topic of involving the media in disaster management. If you would like to find out more or get in touch, you can email us at team at epicpodcast.ca or send us a tweet at username epic underscore underscore podcast or visit our website at www.epicpodcast.ca. And don't forget to check out our partner, Alberta Podcast Network at www.albertapodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of IAEM Canada, the International Association of Emergency Managers. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter by searching Epic Podcast. And finally, a big thank you to all of our contributors and to you, our listeners. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Epic Podcast. Current. Relevant. Canadian.